Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com forward slash adapt. Governments are starting to talk about reopening schools, but how has COVID-19 affected children? Is it even possible to get them to keep a distance of two meters from each other? I'm Anik Bodang from the Montreal Gazette, and this is 10.3. Today, I'm joined by National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey. You can subscribe to 10.3 on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening now. Please leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends about us. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm okay, Manik. This is, what, week eight, I think. All the days are kind of blurring into the other one before it, but uh, I'm, I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. I was just talking with my kids this week about how it feels like time is going super fast and yet super slow at the same time, <laughs> that I can't believe it's actually been eight weeks already, even though it, some days it feels like it's been eight years. You know what I mean? I know. It, it's pretty strange. So today, let's talk about children and COVID-19. There's a lot of discussion about kids and the virus right now. So I was wondering if we could just start with you explaining how COVID-19 affects children. Well, the COVID-19 doesn't seem to be, you know, a major concern for most children. What scientists thought early on in the pandemic from the data from China was that children were just as likely as adults to get infected, but you know, less likely to develop really severe complications. But there have been more recent studies suggesting that there is actually a lower attack rate in kids compared to adults. Mm -hmm. Children do tend to have very mild symptoms and, you know, or no symptoms at all, those so-called asymptomatic infections that we've talked about before. And deaths in children have been like really, really rare. And in Canada, you know, the last time I checked earlier this week, children under 19 accounted for like about 5% of confirmed cases in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting and it's it's puzzling, right? Because most seasonal viral infections like influenza, they tend to be more severe in young infants and children. But it's different with the virus that causes COVID-19. The virus is known as SARS-CoV-2. Because far fewer kids have developed, you know, like severe pneumonia. And one doctor in Montreal said to me this week, you know, thank God kids seem mostly okay because you could imagine how terrible it would be if kids were really affected by this pandemic. There seems to be, though, this there's this mysterious inflammatory condition that we're hearing more and more about. Can you talk about that? What are the symptoms of this? And what is it exactly? This is troubling, you know. Just in the past week, there have been several bulletins. There was one from the UK, one from Boston, and one just on Monday of this week from New York City's Public Health Department. And it's about this condition they're calling multi-system inflammatory syndrome. New York City identified 15 children, they were ages 2 to 15, who'd been admitted to hospitals in the last two weeks of April with this syndrome. And in Montreal at St. Justine's Hospital, they've had like more than a dozen cases, like 15 to 20 Mm -hmm. of children affected. And in the Montreal cases, all of the kids, all of the children were easily treated and they recovered. There was one child who did need to be admitted to intensive care. But in the New York City cluster, some children actually needed to be put on ventilators. The thing with this multi-inflammatory syndrome is that 
It looks like something called Kawasaki disease. And Kawasaki disease causes inflammation, you know, the swelling and redness in blood vessels throughout the body. And Mm -hmm. the classic symptoms are fevers that are quite high for more than five days. The kids get kind of the swelling of their feet. They get changes in their lips and tongue. They get a rash. They get swollen lymph nodes, including usually one in the neck. They get these red eyes. So they get conjunctivitis, which is, you know, pink eye, but there's no discharge. And they're very, very fussy. And the biggest complication of Kawasaki is that they could get in severe cases, coronary artery aneurysms. And that's the biggest Hmm. worry that doctors have. And that means, you know, the blood vessels that provide oxygen to the heart get dilated. But again, the vast majority of children who get this inflammatory system do well, they respond quite well to treatment. So how might this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, how might it be linked to COVID-19? Well, you know, the link hasn't been proven, but What they found was quite interesting in the New York cases. So they tested the kids, and some of the kids tested positive for an active COVID-19 infection. So, you know, they swabbed the back of their noses and their throats, and the tests picked up virus showing that they were infected, that they had active infections. But a lot of the kids, the tests came back negative. Hmm. But then when they checked their blood, they found antibodies against the virus that causes COVID-19, which suggests that they in fact, had been exposed sometime in the past. Mm -hmm. And so here's the link. Maybe, uh, you know, the link with Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease often happens after the body mounts this response to a virus. The problem is that the response is like exaggerated. The immune system goes bonkers and ends up attacking some of the body's own blood vessels. So this could be the case with these kids that this Kawasaki-like syndrome happened, and it might be sort of the lingering effects of their body's response to the COVID-19 virus. Hmm. We've had a lot of discussion in Quebec in the past couple of weeks about schools reopening. And in fact, schools outside of Montreal are scheduled to open starting on Monday. And so there's been a lot of discussion about kids and COVID. So could you talk about how common it is in general for children to actually contract it? There was a review a while back that found that the proportion of kids, children infected with COVID-19, depending which country you looked at, ranged from like 1% to 2% or even as high as 7%. You know, there's Mm -hmm. one study from Iceland where 7% of the children under 10 tested positive. In the US, of the confirmed cases, it's more like 2%. Like I mentioned in Canada, it's around 5%. And the symptoms in children when they do show symptoms, though, are similar compared to adults. So kids get dry cough, you know, fever, sore throat, shortness of breath, diarrhea. But again, it's not really known why children tend to get less severe disease. Mm. You know, there's some theories. One theory is that in adults, when they're infected with the virus, even though, you know, the vast majority of infections in adults are mild, in severe cases, you know, our immune system can sometimes run wild, but overreacts, produces this sort of flood of chemicals that cause inflammation in the tissues in the body and especially in the lungs, which is what leads to respiratory distress syndrome, which is what increases the risks of death. The thinking is that kids, children don't get this hyper response, that they're able to launch a more targeted, a more appropriate response, Mm -hmm. that they have a way of blunting or 
putting the brakes on that kind of hyper inflammatory response that happens in adults. And kids are also exposed to other coronaviruses that circulate every season and that cause a common cold. So it might be that their immune systems are more primed and kind of prepared to you know, launch a, a response against COVID-19. And, and, you know, children are younger, they have a more robust immune system. So one of the main reasons older people are vulnerable is because their immune systems, you know, get weaker with age. Hmm. When we send kids back to school, what could we see about how COVID is spreading there? There are a lot of unknowns still, right? When researchers looked at how children get COVID-19, the major risk factor is household exposure, so getting it from someone they live with. There's some thinking that children are less likely to transmit the infection to others. So remember, a a large number of kids are asymptomatic. When they're infected, they have no symptoms. So one worry early on in the pandemic was, well, what if these kids are stealth spreaders? You know, mm-hmm. they're efficient spreaders. We don't, they don't know they're infected and then they go out into the community and spread the infection. But what studies have found is really low rates of children bringing infections home. I mean, one study I read in Science Magazine just the other day was that they couldn't find a single example of a child under 10 spreading the virus to someone else. But, you know, not everyone's convinced and the evidence isn't consistent. It's like so much of this pandemic virus, it's a moving target. Some studies suggest kids who get sick with COVID-19 are just as infectious as adults, that, you know, their viral load, the amount of virus kids carry is about the same, which, you know, isn't really that reassuring, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I spoke with Dr. Stephen Friedman, this pediatric emergency doctor in uh, Calgary, and he said, you know, we'd feel a whole lot better if their virus load was a lot lower than adults because, you know, so when they sneeze and cough and drool and put their hands on things that they'd be less likely to transmit. And the problem is, is that once schools were closed and kids were cocooned in their sort of family bubble, it became really hard to study disease transmission in kids. So Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of unanswered questions. So the fact that we don't have a lot of information about that, does it have an impact on these return to school plans that are being released? Like the science piece I mentioned earlier, um, they talked about how some people worry that even if children transmit less efficiently than adults, they'll kind of make up for it by their far bigger web of contacts so that once they start congregating again in school, we might you know, see more opportunity for them to spread. I mean, in Spain, for weeks, kids were forbidden from even taking a short walk outside their homes, you know, on the street. Mm -hmm. But there was a report published in one of the Lancet journals that estimated that school closures can prevent, I think it was between two and 4% of deaths related to the COVID pandemic. So not massive percentages, but, you know, still a percentage. Mm -hmm. There was a report released just late last week that got a lot of press. And it was a kind of a summary of an investigation done in Australia and New South Wales. And it was 18 people. So nine students and nine staff from about a dozen schools in New South Wales who tested positive for COVID-19. And so those 18 people had like 800 and some close contacts. So they traced all the contacts and they reported that they found only two secondary infections, meaning only two students who caught the virus from one of the 18 original cases. Hmm. And they said that there was no evidence of children infecting teachers. Well, it's interesting, but the situation in Australia is very different than Canada. There's been, you know, much less disease in Australia. 
their death rate is about, I think it's 5% of what we have per capita here. Hmm. So they have much less, you know, disease burden is how they define it. Their curve's been flattened since the end of March. And, you know, people like Stephen Friedman, the pediatric emergency doc in Calgary, say that, you know, although it seems reassuring, it's by no means definitive proof that kids can't transmit the virus in schools. And, you know, in the Australian study, we don't know how many kids were really closely exposed. We don't know were all the kids tested. Did you swap all of their throats and noses? So it's a bit hard to conclude that there weren't more kids who got sick. So here in Quebec, our plans for opening schools include things like staggered recesses, classes at only half capacity, so 15 kids max in a classroom, teachers who will be wearing personal protective equipment. Are these kinds of precautions necessary? I guess you could say they're being cautious. I don't know if we'll see teachers, you know, gowned and gloved and wearing face shields. They may or may not wear masks. Um, it's interesting in Denmark, Denmark was the first country in Europe to reopen schools after the lockdowns. And their classrooms look a lot different. There was this really great piece in the New York Times where the reporter went in and he describes how the kids were marooned in their classrooms, you know, kind of seated in dust two meters away from each other. And the kids washed their hands at least once an hour for the six-hour day class. And they weren't allowed to hug or touch or give each other high fives. And they can only play in these tiny little groups at recess, and the floors had markings, you know, everywhere, even on the playground that showed kids how far apart they had to stand. And there was this picture of the kids at one school, you know, they kind of gathered in the schoolyard to sing happy birthday to the Danish queen. But first they had to stick their arms out at their sides to you know, mark their spaces to make sure they weren't, you know, too close to the child next to them. Mm -hmm. So it's a new situation, you know, and it, it, it's certainly going to be a challenge. There are some people here who are saying it sounds like kids will be going to prison, you know, when they see <laughs> the guidelines for how schools are supposed to be set up. Yeah. Let me just ask you, just to change uh, topics a little bit, to just talk about daycares for a second, especially for smaller children. I mean, we had some daycares that have stayed open for the last eight weeks for the children of essential workers, but more daycares are going to open on Monday in regions outside of Montreal where there are fewer COVID cases. So smaller children probably aren't going to be the best at physical distancing, right? How do you deal with that aspect well, you know, it's interesting, Norway, which followed, they'd followed Denmark, they actually did reopen preschools and daycares. So they have like yellow smiley faces painted on the playground, and there's, you know, no more toys from home. They have, you know, staggered drop-offs and pick-up times. The kids spend the day in these very small groups of, you know, three or six, depending on their age. There's even a corner where they have to go and cough. So, and there's like, you know, paper towel and soap and disinfectant all over the place. And, you know, no parents are allowed inside. And, it, you know, it's again, the sort of whole new way of running things. Governments have defended the reopenings, right? Saying it's a way to get economies moving again. But, you know, not all parents or teachers are convinced. And in Quebec, I was re reading a release from the Quebec English School Boards Association, and they've said there's still way too many unknowns. And they argue they have the legal authority to decide, you know, if and when their school should open. And in Quebec, it's not mandatory. It won't be mandatory for parents to send their children back. So it will be really interesting to see how many keep their children's home, either from school or from daycares. The government here is also under a lot of pressure to delay the opening of the schools and daycares. Every day we're hearing more and more from parents, from teachers, from even the school boards, as you mentioned, saying that they may not be ready to open in time. So this is a, an evolving uh, situation here, that's for sure. 
Sharon, I just want to ask you one question on behalf of all the parents across the country who are working from home with their kids right now. Are we destined to work at our kitchen tables with our children next to us forever? Let's hope not, right? This pandemic will end eventually. You know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but there are concerns we will see another wave, a second wave, and possibly a bigger wave in the fall or winter of 2020 with, you know, these smaller waves into next year. So we may have to lock down again. We may have to close schools again and then reopen, you know, when cases start to drop off again. We're still trying to figure out a lot of things about this virus, you know, and how do things like school closures really affect case counts? And is it enough to justify, you know, the impact on children's educations? It's still too early to know, really, because this is such a new experience. So we still have to wait for so many answers before we can really understand what the, and I do tend to not like this phrase, but what the new normal is going to look like. That isn't very reassuring news for us parents, Sharon. Well, you know, I hope things do get better. And, and you know, I have a 27-year-old daughter. She's not in school, but I wish she was at the kitchen table with me. She's sheltered in Montreal and I'm here in Ottawa. So um, let's just hope things get back to some kind of normal very quickly. Amen. <laughs> Thank you very much for this, Sharon. <laughs> okay, Manik, my pleasure. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Sharon Kirkey. I'm Anik Bode. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.